Well, thanks for joining me for the final chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's get right into it. As always, I will be reading in the Phillips translation. This third time, I am really coming to you in person. And I'll stop there and just want to remind you one last time. Here's the breakdown. His first visit had been the founding visit. It was talked about in Acts 18. And he had stayed about a year and a half working and constantly teaching. Then the second had been that painful visit where much correction had needed to happen. And so, of course, again, now he's talking about the third one. We continue. Remember the ancient law. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Which is an interesting thing for Paul to write. Because were these specific witnesses in Corinth that he's referring to here? Or were his two past visits the witnesses? And if so, and having been reminded of their sequence just now, and also, again, being at the tail end of both of these letters that we have, what do we know about the witness of Paul in Corinth? Well, that quite frankly, it had always come with a high dose of intensity. I mean, his first recorded words there are, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then having gone to the Gentiles, it continued on in intensity. I mean, the first word that Jesus gives to Paul there in Corinth goes like this. Listen, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And since then, and as evidenced by a riot, a second visit, and four letters, it is clear what Paul's witness has been. He will do anything, I mean absolutely anything, to claim and establish these people for the one to whom they belong. That is the witness of Paul's visits, Paul's heart for the Corinthian fellowship. Can we relate to that? I mean, do our hearts burn similarly for the body, for the fellowship, especially for the outsider? Let's keep reading. My previous warning given on my second visit still stands, and though absent, I repeat it now as though I were present. My coming will not mean leniency for those who have sinned before that visit and those who have sinned since. It will, in fact, be a proof that I speak by the power of Christ. And that's a statement when it's stated in the context of oncoming correction, rebuke, and church discipline that should really give us great pause. Why? Listen again to that last sentence. It will, in fact, be a proof that I speak by the power of Christ. What will? Well, look again. He's already planning for non-leniency for those who had, had sinned before that second visit, meaning his last, the second one, and those who have sinned since, meaning in this interim time. I mean, imagine rolling into the midst of people with whom you have had such a complicated history, knowing full well that it's your job to set them right. Actually, that's where I think we should be given pause here. 
Let's think about that for a second. The, the idea of church discipline in general, because I think the problem back then and today with discipline within the body wasn't, isn't that too many people were being called to the carpet too much and by so many. No. The problem back then and today is that too few are being corrected and not enough and only by the very fewest you can ever imagine. Think about it. Typically, what's our model? We hear of something untoward within our fellowship, our congregation, our church, and what do we do about it? Nothing. I mean, be honest. The, the average fellowshipper, congregant, member of the church assumes that's somebody else's job, and they go right back to their life, even if they actually know the person being whispered about. We must understand that in Corinth back then, and in the American church of today, the work of the body's discipline is all our work. And how does the work actually begin? With talking. When a nasty rumor or even clear confirmed evidence of spiritual malfeasance bubbles up, we should go immediately to that person. And we should love them first by listening to them. By personally understanding the realities of the situation. By hearing them out even as we see that Jesus so often did. And then, and always listening to the inner voice of Jesus as it's broadcast by his Holy Spirit within, we should humbly, gently begin the next phase of that conversation. We should do and say whatever the Spirit of Jesus tells us to bring that person right back into right alignment with Jesus. Friends, it is upon him that we must refasten that person's eyes. It's his holiness and purity that we're all after in this together. The problem is that we often perceive church discipline to be either this regimented or sometimes arbitrary process, when in truth, it's personal, intimate, and immediately contemporaneously necessary, even on the fly. Think about it this way. You trying to help a brother or sister reconnect with Jesus now, even fumblingly, is infinitely better than some pastor or leader trying to do it 10 years from now. I mean, much of 1 and 2 Corinthians wouldn't have been necessary if anyone on the ground had actually done what I'm talking about. But instead, what do they do? Yeah, they left it for Paul to deal with which explains where we are right now in 2 Corinthians 13, still talking about these sorts of things. So friends, how do we begin properly engaging in these processes? I would say Paul gives us the perfect glimpse of the voice we're supposed to be listening to right here. Let's continue on. The Christ you have to deal with is not a weak person outside you, but a tremendous power inside you. He was weak enough to be crucified, yes, but he lives now by the power of God. I am weak as he was weak, but I am strong enough to deal with you, for I share his life by the power of God. Now you listening, you know that I talk about the life of abiding so much the idea of individual union with Jesus, that actually now, instead of doing another walkthrough of a, frankly, a, a perfect proof text like this one, 
I'm going to put all the work on you, especially since we're on a podcast and we're not together. And I really do hope you're in a crowded space. Like there's just tons of people around for this because it's going to get really awkward for you. Fabulous. Okay. So like a wedding vow, what I want you to do right now is actually repeat after me. And I'm talking out loud, phrase by phrase, maybe even shouting these words. And I want you to repeat after me the glorious words of your connection with this living, indwelling Jesus. Can you do that? Of course you can. And in fact, I'll say it again. Do it loudly. Are you ready? Repeat after me with some heart. The Christ I have to deal with is not a weak person outside me, but a tremendous power inside me. He was weak enough, yes, to be crucified, but he lives now by the power of God. I am weak as he was weak, but now I am strong enough for anything, for I share his life by the power of God. And you know what? I'm not sure you believe it yet. I'm not sure I even believe it yet. Let's do it one more time and maybe even louder. The Christ I have to deal with is not a weak person outside me, but a tremendous power inside me. He was weak enough, yes, to be crucified, but he lives now by the power of God. I am weak as he was weak, but now I am strong enough for anything. For I share his life by the power of God. Friends, I can only imagine how messengers like Paul needed almost mantras like this to endure all that they endured. I mean, at every turn, he must have felt his full exposure to all the dangers of the evil one, um, of the world around him, even the wrath of the Roman Empire. But when your highest belief is that you share the inner life of a man whose life was inextinguishable, it does something to you. That belief, believed properly, should have us walking around the face of the earth as one of the immortals. For that is what we are now. And also, by the way, why Paul says what he says in this next section. Let's go on again. You should be looking at yourselves to make sure that you are really Christ's. It is yourselves that you should be testing, not me. You ought to know by this time that Christ is in you unless you are not real Christians at all. And when you have applied your test, I am confident that you will soon find that I myself am a genuine Christian. I pray, God, that you may find the right answer to your test, not because I have any need of your approval, but because I earnestly want you to find the right answer, even if that should make me no real Christian. For after all, we can make no progress against the truth. We can only work for the truth. And you know what? Right now, 
I want you to internalize this eternal, internal truth that we just read in this section. This is huge. According to Paul of Tarsus, the real Christian is he or she with verifiable inward experience of the life of Jesus living within them. Let me very clearly say that again. The real Christian is he or she with verifiable inward experience of the life of Jesus living within them. Not just having all the rote Christian knowledges, nor a perfect record of faithful Sunday appearances, or even a reputation for doing nice Christian things. The real Christian is he or she with verifiable inward experience of the life of Jesus living within them. Verifiable by who? You and the Holy Spirit. Inward meaning what? That it works from the inside out. The life of Jesus living how? Friends, to the fullest, full extent of his own heavenly earthly power and glory, to the degree that you'll abide in him and let him. You know, it's interesting. Where Phillips translates verse 5 as, quote, unless you are not real Christians at all, the simple Greek says, if you are not unapproved, a dokimoi. The meaning of that word is, it runs like this, listen, discredited, not approved, unsatisfactory, unconvincing, and this is kind of my favorite one, not legal tender. So, you know, let's, let's go ahead and flip that on its head, shall we? As we engage more and more with the inward reality of the indwelling of Jesus within us, what will we become and be? Listen, creditable with his words and witness, approved by him for the purposes of the kingdom, utterly, meaningfully satisfactory to his very own heart, mightily convincing to him and others in the devotion of our lives. And again, this is my favorite one, legal tender of the heavenly economy. I mean, you and I will be ready to be spent and to spend ourselves. We will be unable to be counterfeited because our weights and measures are, you know what? Glory. So one last time, the real Christian is he or she with verifiable inward experience of the life of Jesus living within them. My friends, let us never stop moving in the direction of greater and greater encounter with him right here within. That's the name of the game. Let's keep reading. We are glad to be weak if it means that you are strong. Our ambition for you is true Christian maturity. Hence the tone of this letter, so that when I do come, I shall not be obliged to use that power of severity which God has given me. Though, even that is not meant to break you down, but to build you up. And what an interesting counterweight to our conversation last week about weakness and strength for those of you who are with us at Anchor. He says here, we are glad to be weak if it means that you are strong. Isn't it interesting to think that feeling weak, being weak, the way we respond to our weakness in Jesus might correspond to the enstrengthening of others? 
that how I handle my problems today might actually be my best witness? That perhaps, and this sounds crazy, it's not all about me? You know, the opportunity we have, whether weak or strong, up or down, even depressed or delighted, is to mingle these human lives with the only human life that was always consequential. Yes, to to, to bring our weakness or strength or our up or down or depression or sheer delight to him and say, Jesus, here I am. Use me. Did you know our little daily lives can be infinitely useful to Jesus? In fact, they are meant to be the actual places of his inhabitation. Let's finish the chapter. Last of all, then, my brothers, goodbye. Set your hearts on this maturity I have spoken of. Consider my advice. Live in harmony. Be at peace with one another. So shall the God of love and peace be ever with you. And greet one another with a holy kiss. All the Christians here send greeting. The grace that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ the love that is of God the Father, and the fellowship that is ours in the Holy Spirit be with you all. And you know what? That's actually a perfect way to end these many months, not just in 2 Corinthians, but in both letters to this fellowship. May the fellowship that is ours in the Holy Spirit be with you all, writes Paul. May you and I first recognize the need for, power of, and may we grow wildly desirous for more of that Holy Spirit of God. I mean, may he be thick with the presence of Jesus amidst us. And yes, even though separated by the distance of our days and living through a time of great interpersonal isolation, may we each learn to recognize that we all, in fact, share the very same Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the mutuality of the Godhead. And this is great. He's our mutuality too. You and I are truly one in Him. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening.